you to take your Bibles, if you would please, and open them to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And tonight is, of course, our regularly scheduled time for our church as a body to come together to observe the Lord's Supper. And I'd like to speak to you this evening about a, a particular aspect of the Supper. And I, I, I won't be too long on this because I just want to talk about one part. And the message that I want to bring you tonight uh, really closely parallels the subject that we had last Sunday evening. Uh, I spoke from the book of Revelation, of course, and we talked about the return of Christ. And this evening, we're going to look at this again from uh, this familiar passage that we have in 1 Corinthians. And this is where Paul is teaching the church on particular procedures for the Lord's Supper. And he's not talking about mechanical procedures here. Uh, He's not speaking about a set protocol for how that we are to present the supper. We don't have anything in the Word of God that gives us information about whether we should stand or we should sit as we take this. Uh, The Bible doesn't tell us whether we are to use one large cup for us to drink out of or many small cups as we do, and you're probably thankful for that. The Bible doesn't say whether we have one loaf of bread and that we're to pass that around, and then you pull a piece off of it and eat it. It doesn't talk about that. It doesn't say anything all about a, about a priest who comes and places a wafer, or you come up to the priest and he places a wafer on your tongue. It doesn't say anything about a, uh, the, the cup being elevated to be consecrated. There's nothing in the Bible about that. There's no info in Scripture that says that deacons are to help to administer the supper. And that's a good thing because some of the deacons uh, are not able to make it tonight because of illness, and so we'll have someone else to assist us with that. Uh, The Bible doesn't say anything whether we're to have uh, a plate up here on the table and you come up here and get it, or if we are able to distribute it in the way that we do. The Bible doesn't say that I have to preach a sermon before we take the Lord's Supper, but I will, and that's what you're here for now. And the Bible doesn't say whether there is a prescribed prayer that we're to use or many prayers or to say one beginning in the middle, the end, or anything like that. See, the Bible doesn't concern itself with those kinds of procedures. There is no liturgical form that we find in Scripture for taking the Lord's Supper. So that means the method is pretty much of our own choosing. And over time, what we do is we develop our own system for Uh, distributing the supper for taking this. I know that when I first uh, came here that there were some, maybe some people who don't like the way that I I administer the Lord's Supper. And uh, just to be honest about that, uh, some of you weren't used to what I do, but I do it the way that I was taught as I was growing up. I mean, it wasn't really anything that, that comes particularly from the Bible that says that I have to do it this way or another way. The Bible just doesn't address those kinds of things. So I just do it according to what I'm used to, and we believe that we honor the Lord as we do it. Then as you look at the Lord's Supper, there are some people that do take it in a different way. Some people take it on Sunday morning. And I always thought that was a little bit peculiar because it is a supper after all. But uh, more importantly than that, it's the communion of the Lord's body. So whether we take it in the morning or at night, I don't think the Lord is displeased if we do it one way or the other. Then there are some people, some churches, that take the Lord's Supper on a Wednesday night. 
and I happen to know of one particular church that I can think of that does that, and they don't take it as often as we do, and the reason they take it on a Wednesday night is because there are less visitors, and so they take it among the members of the church, and uh, they don't have to address that, 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 that issue. But then I look at that, and that might be all right as well, except I do find in Scripture where the Bible says that the disciples met on the first day of the week for the breaking of bread. And if you wanted to say that's an absolute command of Scripture, maybe you take that opinion, uh, and maybe it's all right to do it another way. So the Bible then also doesn't say how often to take the supper. It doesn't say you have to do it once a month, uh, two times a month, twice a year, three times a year, whatever. The Bible doesn't talk about that. It just simply says, for as oft as you do it. And so we're the ones that decide the frequency. So what I'm trying to point out to you here is there is no set protocol. There, there is no particular way that we're supposed to do it. But that doesn't mean that there are no commands concerning the Lord's Supper. Now, I'd like you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and I want to show you one particular command. Now, there are several commands that go along with this, but I want to show you just one. So, we begin reading in verse number 23, where you're all familiar with the Scripture. For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. Now we notice the command is in verse number 26, the one I want to show you. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. I want you to notice the word show there in verse number 26. That's translated in other places as preach. In Acts 4, verses 1 and 2, And as they spake unto the people, the priest and captain, and as they spake unto the people, the priest and the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them, being grieved that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 21, it says, For that, after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching. And as we've explained, that means by the foolishness of the thing that is preached to save them that believe. So preached and preaching, that's the same as the word show that we have in our text in 1 Corinthians 11. Then it's also translated as declare. Paul used it that way in Acts chapter 17 when he was preaching to the Athenians about the unknown God. He said, For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. And so I think that the conclusion that we can draw from our text in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that what we are to do, we are to proclaim we are to preach and we are to declare the Lord's death until he comes. Now, that's one of the commands that we find, and that's just one of many that we are to obey until Christ comes. One of the commands that we are commanded is to witness. And that's one of the major themes that we've been looking at in the past few weeks in Matthew chapter 13. 
Then beginning next week on several Sunday nights, we'll talk about witnessing, evangelizing, telling people about Jesus Christ. Another thing that we're told to do until Jesus comes is we're commanded to pray. And that's because there is never a time when we don't need the strength of the Lord, when we don't need to fellowship with him by talking with him. And certainly, we are constantly attacked by the devil with all of his temptations and the many different wiles that he uses. And then also, we are commanded to love. We're to do that until Christ comes. Uh, John says that that is an identifying mark of a Christian, so that if you don't have any love in your heart for your brothers and sisters in Christ, he says, you are, you, you are not in Christ. Your Christ is not in you. And very simply interpreted, that just means you're not a Christian. If there is no desire in your heart to love other people, to love the people of your church especially, then you're not a Christian. And then I might add to that, as we gather around the Lord's table tonight, that there ought to be a, a sense of closeness to one another. I mean, we have been commanded to be rid of all the malice that's in our heart, all of the envy, all of the evil speaking, and all of the grudges. And we are to confess those sins, and we are to be in harmony as we come together as the church tonight. So there, there should be then this, this sweetness of fellowship that envelops the church. And, and if you don't really feel that closeness to your brother, sis, brothers and sisters in Christ, and if you can come this evening and can sit in a gathering like this and sing the songs that we have sung, and yet you have something against someone who's a member of the church and sitting in the same place that you are tonight, and if you have a, a problem with them and you've spoken against them, well, then we can only say that according to the Word of God, you're actually guilty of the sins of the worst sort because the Word of God says that when you come to the supper like that, you desecrate the body of the Lord Jesus Christ by having that in your heart. You know, sometimes I wish that I had the ability to read your minds because what I'd do, I'd see what you're thinking and I would come down there and I'd just slap you and straighten you up and say, what's wrong with you? you? You can't sit here in a meeting like this. I mean, I don't want God's chastisement to be upon you. So straighten yourself up. Make amends with people. Have the right feeling in your heart for other people. Now, this evening, I want to uh, talk to you about this particular part. I mean, all these other things that I've just mentioned, th those aren't the main subject. What I want to talk to you about is proclaiming the Lord's death in this part until he comes. We believe that Jesus is coming. That's the main thought here. Jesus is returning. And we keep taking this supper over and over and over again because we believe he will return. This is one of the reasons that we do it. And so we are preaching his death every time that we take it, and we're speaking of the fact that Christ will return every time that we come together for the Lord's Supper. Now, what I'd like to show you just very quickly tonight. We won't be long. I want to show you three guarantees from Scripture that Christ will return. How do we know that Christ is coming back? Well, if I could borrow a line from a children's hymn, because the Bible tells me so. That's how I know that he's coming back, because the Bible tells me so. Well, where does the Bible tell me so? Well, I would start with this, and this seems to be the most important and most outstanding verification that I can have that Jesus will return, and that is that he tells me so. Jesus tells me that he's coming back. 
Now, the children's song says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The Bible is the source of this information. It tells us that Jesus loves us. And if you can believe the Bible on that all-important fact, if you believe that subject, if the Bible's not correct about that, if the Bible misses that subject, then there's no point in me telling you anything else. There's no reason for us to even talk about what else is in the Bible if we're not convinced and sure of this, that Jesus loves us. As his people, he loves us. He he loves his own and he gave his life for us. So we know it's true. The Bible says that it's true. And the Bible records the promise that Jesus made himself that he would return. And one of our favorite chapters, I think probably of everybody, is John chapter 14. And Jesus began there saying, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That is just a wonderful promise of Scripture, isn't it? Each time that we come to the Lord's table where he says, ye do show the Lord's death till he come, I think that John 14 really ought to echo in our ears. He spoke those words on the same night that he gave the supper. Now the supper, of course, was preparation for his death and it wasn't really, as Jesus gave these words to his disciples, it wasn't really a sad, bitter wail of a funeral. But Jesus included here this joyous thought that he was going to leave and prepare a heavenly home for us. And then when he's finished, whatever he wants to do in preparing that home for us and getting all things ready, he said, I'm going to return. I'm coming back for you. And he promised that he would take us back to that eternal home. And there are many other places where Jesus said that he was return, would return. I think about the same night that we talk about here, on on that same night that Jesus was taken uh, taken to a trial. And there in the council hall of the Jews, he was being interviewed by the high priest. There were false witnesses that had been brought against him to tell lies about him. And listen as I read this in Matthew 26. And the high priest arose and said unto him, Answerest thou nothing? What is it which these witness against thee? But Jesus held his peace And the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Now up to that point, Jesus said nothing. He wasn't answering their questions. And so uh, he, he wasn't interested in what they had to ask him. And so he answered this way when he heard this said to him in a very powerful way, Jesus saith unto him, Thou hast said. He said, Are you the Son of God? And he said, Thou hast said. And if we wanted to put that in our own vernacular, today's modern language, we would say, you said it, buddy. You got it right, fella. I am the Son of God. I am God himself. And then he said to them, nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And so there, right, right as they're questioning him, he gives this great promise that he's coming in power. Well, that's the last thing they wanted to know. He's coming in power because what's what's he going to do when he comes in power? Well, for us as believers, he does um, 
two important things, and I didn't put these on your listening sheet, but you might want to make note of them. He does two important things for us as believers. The, the first thing that he does, he ensures our final victory over death, hell, and the grave. Now, you can read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And there Paul concludes one section of that great resurrection chapter by speaking of the trumpet that sounds and then the coming of the Lord. And he says this in verse 55, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's preaching material. That's something to talk about. That's something to show. Whenever we take the supper, we remember Christ's promise to return and what he will do and what he's done by his resurrection and by his return is he's defeated all of our enemies. He defeats sin and Satan and death and hell. And then there's another second aspect, I think, for believers in this promise that that salvation is complete when Christ comes. And that doesn't mean that when you first trust Christ and you believe in him as your Savior. that doesn't. I'm not saying that you're not permanently saved then. Of course you're permanently saved. But what I mean is we receive the final fruit of our salvation. That means that we enter into that heavenly home. That's the finality of it. Now, our entire life after we receive Christ until he returns is a process of salvation. And I hope that you understand that. We are in the process of salvation. At belief, when we first trust Christ, we are saved from sin's penalty. And then every day that we're sanctified by the Holy Spirit, we are being freed and sanctified from the power of sin. And then when Christ returns, we will be saved. We shall be saved from the presence of sin. And how do we know all of that? Very simply, the Bible tells me so. Jesus tells me so. And then secondly, how do I know that Jesus will return? Well, the angels tell me so. The angels said that he would return. And you really have to love this. I mean, these heavenly creatures, that these ones that always do the bidding of God, they always do God's work, these same angels that are charged with separating the just from the wicked at the great harvest of souls, these same angels said Jesus will return. Now, we read in the book of Acts in a place where the disciples were somewhat bewildered as they watched him go into heaven. Acts chapter 1, verse 10, And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. And there is another great promise from the word of God. The angel said, Jesus will return. And you notice what they said about him? The same Jesus, the same one who left here, he's the one that will return. The one that we celebrate tonight in the supper, he's the one that will return. The one that has the nail-scarred hands and the one who has that hole in his side where the spear pierced him and that one who has the imprint of that crown of thorns upon his brow, he's coming back. And I don't know what you believe about it, but I believe that he comes back with the same wounds that he left with. I think that for all of eternity, there's going to be this reminder that he is the Lamb of God that was slain for our sins. 
But I also know this, that when he comes back, when he comes to establish his kingdom, the blood that will be on him then is not his own blood. But rather that blood is the blood of those who have been tread in the winepress of God's great wrath. Now I thank him for this, that he saves me from that. He saves me from that great bloodbath that's coming for the, those that are unbelievers. As the word of God says in Matthew, we studied the last couple of weeks, that he's going to separate, the angels will separate the wheat and the tares, and they're going to gather those that are the redeemed into God's barn. So the angels tell us that Christ will return. And then finally, how do I know that Christ will return? Well, thirdly, the apostles tell me so. Now, I've remarked, we've remarked many times about this, how the words that the apostles speak are just as important as the words that Christ spoke. They spoke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, and so that means when they were speaking, God was speaking. We learned that as we studied verses 18 and 19 in Revelation chapter 22, that, that this is God's word, and when the apostles speak, and we have the complete word of God, this is God speaking to us. And whenever the apostles talk about the return of Jesus Christ, they are also speaking under inspiration, and they have the sovereign God who told them to say this, that Jesus is coming. Peter talked about Christ's return. Remember, he mentions the scoffers in Second Peter chapter 3, and those scoffers said, where is the promise of his coming? Where is he? And they said, all things continue as they were from the beginning. So our conclusion is, he's not coming back. We don't really need to be concerned about it. We don't think that he's coming. And Peter said, you ignorant fools, you ignorant people, just as God judged the world in the time of Noah by a flood, He's coming again. He's going to judge the world this time with fire. He said, yes, he's coming back. And then he said, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. And he encouraged us. He said, you need to be consecrated. You need, you need to live a holy life. You need to be ready for this coming day of God. And what is it all about? Well, it all happens. This, he's talking about when Christ returns to the earth. And then, of course, the Apostle Paul. We know that he talked about Christ's return. There are many places where he did, but I think especially of what he had to say in First and Second Thessalonians. See, the church in Thessalonica was so anxious about the coming of the Lord that they actually thought that they had missed it. And so Paul had to talk to them about that, and he gave this great discourse in First Thessalonians chapter 4, and I'll read this, but I also want to remind you in Second. Thessalonians. He spoke a great deal about the day of the Lord. But in the fourth chapter of 1 Thessalonians, this, this scripture that we know well, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. And I think that's what we do every time we take the supper. We comfort one another with these words that Jesus Christ is coming back. And then you know I can't forget this apostle. The apostle John talked about the return of Jesus Christ. Now after four years of studying the book of Revelation, we're very much aware how John talked about that. And uh, we had all of those Saturday nights, or Sunday nights rather, for all of that time to talk about how Christ will return. And so God gave 
John this great revelation and showed him what would happen when Christ comes back, how the history of the world will end, and the great crowning event of all of that is that Christ himself comes back. And we see this powerful imagery in the book of Revelation, and actually the climax of the book, if you remember, the climax of the book is the 19th chapter. And that's when Jesus Christ himself comes riding on that white horse. He comes with a name where he's called the faithful and the true. And you wonder, why is he called faithful and true? Well, there's many reasons for that. But surely the one that we're thinking about tonight, he's called faithful and true because he promised to come back, and he will come back. And he comes with that vesture dipped in blood, and he comes with a sword in his hand, and he rules with a rod of iron, and this name is emblazoned upon him, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then in the last chapter of Revelation, chapter 22, three times John repeats the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, where he says in verse 7, Behold, I come quickly. Verse number 12, And behold, I come quickly. And then verse 20, Surely I come quickly. Do you think about that? When you come to the supper, are you aware of this? Do you think about this when you, when you take that, that bread and you put it into your mouth or you raise that cup to your lips? Do you really think about this, that, that Jesus said he is coming back? He's coming back. And when we read the word, you do show the Lord's death till he come. The promise sticks with us or should that Christ is coming back. Now, this is, this is something that is actually central to the gospel. And I know that you understand this. This is a central issue to the gospel that we serve a living Christ. You see, if we came here tonight and all that we wanted to do was just show the fact that Christ died and that's all that happened then we would be the most miserable people on the face of this earth. It's what the Apostle Paul said. If, if Christ didn't do something else besides die, if he didn't arise from the grave, he said, you are of all men most miserable. He said, well, you have no faith. You have nothing. You, 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 you have no reason to preach. You have no reason to be here. He said, you're still in your sins if Christ didn't arise from the grave. So we praise God for this. He is alive. And so we take the cup and we take the bread and we acknowledge the fact that Christ died for our sins and we keep on doing it until he comes. That's what the Bible says. So so we take the supper with anticipation, or at least we should, and we take it with the right attitude. I don't think that there could possibly be a Christian who could be unhappy and go away from this supper with with the wrong kind of attitude, a grumpy attitude, if you have it in your heart that you know for sure that he said this, he's coming back. That's a wonderful promise that we have in the word of God. So we keep on celebrating. We keep on doing this. As a church body, we will do it. We'll show the Lord's death until he comes. That's what we're commanded to do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this night that you've given us and just the privilege that we have to come together as the church body to celebrate this this supper and we think about all that it entails the the body that was shed or body that was hung on a cross and nails driven into it and then the blood that was shed for our sins and just what a what an awesome thought that that is and we just thank you lord that we are able to come together in a remembrance of that time that you spent on the cross and gave your life for us 
Bless your people tonight, Lord. We just thank you for all of your blessings and thank you for Jesus Christ who died for our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.